beatitude. Weird word. What is a beatitude? Uh, like I said last week, the Bible doesn't actually use the phrase, the Sermon on the Mount. And it doesn't actually use uh, the word beatitude, except maybe as a, you know, little page break in your Bible put there by an editor. They're called the Beatitudes because each sentence begins with the word blessed or blessed. And uh, during the Middle Ages, the Bible was only translated into Latin. And the Latin word for blessed is bieti, bieti. So these became known as the Beatitudes, Beatitudes. Now, to say that someone is bieti or blessed uh, literally means to say that they are happy or that they are people to be congratulated. Have, have you noticed how the word blessed has crept into our popular vernacular lately, particularly in um, North American Christianity? It kind of verges on a cliche at times. I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, hashtag blessed. There's this great quote by author and theologian Kate Baldwer. And she says, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. Drivers can choose the mass-produced blessed license plate for $16.99. When in America's next top model star, took off his shirt, audience saw blessed tattooed above his pecs. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It is the humble brag of the stars. Hashtag blessed is the only caption suitable for viral images of alpine vacations and family yachting in barely there bikinis. It says, I totally get it. Uh, I am down to earth enough to know that this is crazy, but it also says, God gave this to me, insert adorable shrug. Don't blame me, I'm blessed. And then here comes Jesus, who blesses those who no one has ever blessed. Jesus invites all those who are feeling helpless and hopeless and in despair, people who feel unworthy and totally empty to actually feel good about it. They're blessed, but they may just not know it. The uh, opening statements of this most famous sermon is addressed to the broken, the people our society might even call losers. And Jesus says, you're not a loser. You, you may have had a hard time seeing it, but you are blessed. Now, uh, these Beatitudes, this is not Jesus prescribing how to be blessed, but rather he's describing who is already blessed. So this is not a to-do list. It's more of a good news list. Beatitudes show us no one is beyond God's blessing. And even those who society calls cursed or worthless, Jesus just decimates our wicked tendency to judge others by their circumstances. And of course, that goes for even how we judge ourselves. Who is really blessed, it turns out? Uh, it can't be determined by a person's appearance or their bank account or 
their social media highlight reel. It's so countercultural. It's so counterintuitive. And we're going to keep running into this idea that the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about in a minute, it feels upside down compared to the kingdoms of this world. It's all flip it and reverse it. Much of the Sermon on the Mount can be summed up this way. The way up is down. <laughs> like, totally counterintuitive. And Jesus says stuff like this all throughout his ministry. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, if blessed means something like, congratulations, we'll just try throwing that word into the Beatitudes and, and see how it sounds. It's even, it's even more audacious. Congratulations, those of you who are mourning. Congratulations, those who are persecuted. What do they have to be congratulated about? And uh, I think this applies to all the blessed people we talk about. Congratulations are in order because they have the approval of the King of Kings. The God of the universe approves of them. He sees them and is with them and says, well done. I'm going to give you a double portion of my spirit. Maybe um, we could even call it an old Pentecostal word. Uh, you have a double portion of my anointing. So, so take a look at his first statement. Blessed or happy, bieti, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus starts off right away by saying something about happiness that no other spiritual figure had ever said, that, that the people in the world who are truly happy, fulfilled, blessed, are people who are poor in spirit? Well, hit the pause button right there. Where in our world do we ever say congratulations to anybody who is poor in anything? You know, the word poor uh, means you're lacking something, you're needy, you're living in some kind of, of poverty. That's not good. That's never good. But this is where unpacking Jesus starts to reveal why he's such a revolution. Uh, so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? People who are poor in spirit are those who come to grips with the fact that they are spiritually empty, that on their own, apart from God, they have nothing. In fact, even though God doesn't cause the trials, God doesn't cause the cancer or the attack, he may actually redeem those circumstances to, to draw you to him and even to reveal false illusions you had about yourself. It's, it is a shattering of pride. Well, congratulations, because God got to you and God is with you. I've said this before, but Nine times out of ten, those who come up to an altar on a Sunday morning, those who want to invite Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, are not those who have won the lottery, who just got promoted, where life is going great. 
it's usually the people who have come to the end of themselves, who have faced a great trial and, and realize how in over their head they are and how much they need a savior. Congratulations. God is looking high and low all over the planet for one kind of person, the weak, the rejected. He isn't looking for the strong, the one who's got it all together or isn't in need of anything. He's looking for the weak. He's looking for people who know that they need a savior. So today, if you feel utterly impoverished spiritually, congratulations. God has been looking for a person just like you. And, and the way of the kingdom of heaven is the path of brokenness. So when God says, congratulations on your brokenness, you're actually blessed. That's God's opinion. Now, you may not see it as blessedness, but God says it is. So whose opinion are you going to trust? This is God's affirmation of your spiritual status. His, his spiritual report card is, you're broken? Well, you're in good shape. Now, other people may not see it that way, but whose opinion are you going to trust? Can you live with God's point of view? Can I tell you something that is freeing? When you get to the point in your weakness, in your brokenness, that you realize you have no bargaining power with God, that the only thing you can do is just ask for mercy, man, that's just freeing. And I think that's a bit of what Jesus is talking about here. It's a paradox. Being poor in spirit is the way you get God's attention. And yet it shows that God has gotten your attention. God gets what he wanted too, which was you. The whole time he was seeking you. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. You know, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. So listen, uh, please don't try to outgrow being poor in spirit. Don't try to outgrow your need for mercy. Hebrews says to, to keep on approaching his throne in your time of need because you'll receive grace and you'll receive mercy when you do. So Jesus is saying, um, people who get in touch with their need for God are people to be congratulated. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, if we misunderstand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven, we're likely to misunderstand his entire sermon. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not the church. The kingdom of heaven is not even where God's people go after, after they die. Jesus uses the, the phrase kingdom of heaven along with the kingdom of God interchangeably to describe the non-physical, invisible, but very present realm where God dwells, okay? Uh, Adelis Willard defined the kingdom of heaven as where what God wants done is done. The realm where God rules and evil is powerless. 
Well, now it starts to make sense when we say the kingdom of God has come and is coming, right? Christ has ultimately defeated death on the cross and through his resurrection, he is victorious. The worldwide church is growing. The kingdom is expanding. His arrival is imminent, but there's still much work to be done. Hearts are still hard. Injustice is still rampant. Pandemics are still in the world. Satan hasn't been completely disarmed yet. Now, if there's a kingdom, what does that mean? It means there's a king. And who's presented in scripture as our king? Jesus is. Uh, we just came through Christmas and we know the story of the Magi who came from the East and they're asking, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And the angel tells Mary that her child's kingdom would never end. And later Jesus would tell Pontius Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. Jesus even announces his ministry by saying, the kingdom of heaven is near or, or close at hand. You know, near the end of his ministry, Jesus would disappoint people by saying that the kingdom of heaven uh, would be invisible. Um, it's invisible, but it's inhabitable. One can live in it. And he said his kingdom was internal. It would reside in the heart of believers. You know, it's a sermon uh, that doesn't make sense really until a person is born again and the spirit begins to open eyes and ears and illuminate our understanding. And we start to live in this kingdom of God. You know, people who are poor in spirit are the ones who've admitted their spiritual need. And as a result, they're able to have their life filled with God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, God can only pour into those who are not too full of themselves. So congratulations, because nothing in life can match what God can bring to bear. Nothing else can intersect our deepest needs, our deepest longings, but God. We were made for relationship with him. And until that relationship is there, um, we will never be complete, never fully alive. And I'll just go public with how true it is for me. My relationship with God is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Best thing that's ever happened to me. And I have had a lot of good things happen. I have been married to an incredible woman for nearly 25 years. <laughs> we have three amazing, healthy, brilliant children who that, you know, we're really close to. I have a job and a calling that I love. At this stage in my life, I'm in good health, Ch chubby, but in good health. With all of that, which is what most people aspire to have in life, still my relationship with God is the best thing that has ever happened to me. So, Jesus begins by saying that true joy begins with knowing how empty we are without God. 
And as a result, those people are the most fulfilled. Why? Because the poor in spirit get what they long for. They get God. Second thing he says, um, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I know that sounds crazy. Theologian uh, John Stott says, this has got to be one of the strangest verses in the Bible. It could, it could literally be translated, happy are the unhappy. And that word can also be translated as lucky. It just, it doesn't make sense. And maybe for those of you who are truly grieving these days, it almost sounds offensive. Lucky, really? Are you, are you trying to be tasteless? Because if you have ever mourned, I mean really mourned something, would you ever say there's anything happy about it? And if someone walked up to you in a time of mourning and said, you know, the Bible says you should be happy because blessed are those who mourn. You have my permission to just flick them in the forehead and walk away. The, the Bible records this um, poignant, touching scene when Jesus actually lost a dear friend, his friend Lazarus, and he was grieved as deeply as anyone. Uh, it's like the very first verse some smart aleck kids like me memorized. Speaking of scripture memorization, what are those two words? The shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. And as I studied this, I discovered the Greek word used to describe his grief can actually refer to the snorting of a horse. In other words, Jesus was grieving so deeply. He was like, heaving, you know, doubling over, ugly crying. There was no happiness in that moment. So what's, what's the deal with this beatitude? I think there's a lot to unpack here, uh, lots of applications. Frankly, lots of ways that this verse will reveal itself as you go through stuff, ways in which you'll go, oh, I get it now. I had to I had to experience this. I had to grow in wisdom and intimacy with Jesus, but it's, it's starting to make sense. Here's a couple thoughts. Um, if we were to look at trials, for instance, you know, the way that we mourn trials. In fact, let's, let's talk about COVID. I know there's, there's worse things, but it's something every one of us can relate to and has adversely affected us in one way or another. I often find myself reacting to this particular trial by complaining, grumbling about how it's inconvenienced me, it's interrupted my plans. You know, like a lot of trials, I, I want whatever it takes to get it over with as soon as possible. And usually when it was over, I was no better off. I didn't grow spiritually, I didn't gain wisdom. I just kind of whined the whole time. Um, that's why I've been known to say about this collective trial that we're going through. Let's not let a good crisis go to waste. Can you hear me now? Yes, Lord, your servant is listening. But there's a different kind of trial or maybe a, a different way that we react to a different kind of trial. 
one where you dignify the trial. Maybe even thank God for what it is showing you and how it is changing you. Even in the midst of it, you might, you might even be able to say, God, I don't know why this is happening or what your plan is, but I pray for the grace to receive the maximum blessing you intend for me in this. That, that this would ultimately be for my good, but mostly for your glory. That's, that's quite a prayer, right? I'll tell you another way that this might be a blessing. I wonder how many of you have gotten to the point of actually mourning because you've come to grips with your own sin in all of its destructiveness. You know, the disobedience, the rebellion, the things that would drive you to your knees on that day when you stand before God, that they have actually driven you to your knees now. Don't ignore them. Don't turn a blind eye to them. Don't rationalize them or make light of them. Happiness is letting the things about your life that break the heart of God break your heart. So why is that happiness? Because Jesus said that those who mourn about their sin will be comforted. And that means through grace and through forgiveness. If you've been forgiven of something great, you know how comforting that is. Having something that is eating away at you resolved. Folks, sin is serious business. It destroys our lives. If we don't address it as the cancer it is, it'll infest us with, with guilt and shame. And when we are broken and suffering and mourning, when we truly see our sin, not someone else's sin, our sin, because it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to see someone else's sin, but it sure takes a lot of grace to see your own. Because let's be honest, if we can avoid mourning, we will. If we can avoid suffering, we will. If we can avoid seeing our sin or that, or that we are in the wrong or having to say, sorry, I got it wrong, we'll avoid it. But if we own it, mourn it, bring it to God for confession and forgiveness. That's the kind of mourning that is good because it's met with relief. You know, in the Bible, there's a guy named David, and he had more than his fair share of things to mourn about. And he described this in his own life. And I'm going to read from the message, which is a, a modern translation. He says, count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate's wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you and you're holding nothing back from him. When I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it all out. Suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. That's mourning that leads to comfort. One more application before we close. There 
are those of you today who are mourning and grieving, uh, not because of your sin, but because you've lost someone or you're going through something really, really hard. And as crazy as it sounds, there may be a reason today why Jesus is calling you blessed. Blessed because of what he will give you. It's priceless. He will give you more of himself. And I, I don't want to cheapen the morning of anyone listening today. Chances are I can't even relate to whatever pain you might be going through. But along with the pain, I believe you are receiving a gift. You're receiving more of God. You are getting an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Greek word is uh, parakletos. It, it, it doesn't translate into merely one word in English, but actually several, like comforter, counselor, helper, advocate, the one who comes alongside. And, you know, the greater the suffering, the greater, I believe, the anointing of the Spirit. The more you have been through, the more you will be used by God down the road. You can count on it. I, I remember listening to the radio. This was years ago. It was an old focus on the family, if that rings a bell to anybody. And Dobson was interviewing somebody with a lot of kids. I can't remember if they were um, uh, biological kids, adopted kids, but there was like a dozen of them. And uh, the question was asked, which kid do you love the most? Well, that was a softball. And I knew right there what the answer was supposed to be. It was supposed to be, oh, I love each of my kids equally. Well, what this mom said sort of surprised me. She said, I love the one the most who is hurting the most. And I thought that was a picture of the heart of God. Whichever one is hurting the most at any given time. You're mourning. Congratulations. Not only is God there but he is actually doubly concerned for you during this time. If you don't believe me, I'd invite you to ask Mike and Beth Dara, ask Paul and Joy McLornan, both of whom have told me that while they wouldn't wish these trials on their enemy, they have felt a closeness to the Father, to their community, a, a filling of the Spirit like they never have. Ask Don Briggs, who, who has faced much grief in her own life, and who now, God in his kindness, is using those trials as she walks alongside people who are grieving. And God is using her to give comfort to many. You, you know how many times Grief Share, the course that she teaches, has been a part of for years has been the start of people's spiritual journey. It's been amazing. And now during the pandemic, where groups like Grief Share can't meet, Don has actually been inundated with opportunities to counsel the hurting and the bereaved, and God is using her. And Don, if you're watching, I, I just wanna encourage you today because you are in many ways the blessing 
that Jesus is talking about when he says those who mourn will be comforted. Thank you. Thank you. I think of Gloria Graff, who is, is going to use her trials to be a source of comfort and blessing to others. You know, we need to make space for mourning in our Christian communities because they are legitimate expressions of worship. You know, there's this whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? You know, most of the Psalms, which are essentially our worship template, are poems of lament, complaints, cries for justice. How long, O oh Lord? You know, Jesus in Luke 6 repeats this sentiment from the Sermon on the Mount in a different way. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And that's, that's an allusion, I think, to Psalm 126. Those who so weeping will go out with songs of joy. And I would just say, forgive me if I've ever given the impression that our Sunday services are just for celebration and nothing else, you know, that we're supposed to be some sort of happy, clappy Christians and just sweep suffering under the rug. That's not biblical. That's not authentic. That's not the model of Jesus. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, if you're mourning today, he's actually blessing you. If you are poor in spirit, his kingdom is yours. Lord, may we know what that truly means this morning.